It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD to the Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosey. The show is available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes. And we have a blog, which someday will be updated at filmsociology.tumblr.com. Uh, let's see. We have some shameless plugging before we get into my guest in studio. Uh, if you don't go see a movie because it's August, and actually there's good films to see in August, but uh, Indie Fringe is happening on Mass Ave. And, of course, depending on when you're listening to this, I have to mention the play Elsie and Francis and the Fairies, which is happening on the main stage at the Phoenix Theater um, Sunday at 1.30 p.m., Tuesday at 9, Thursday at 6, Saturday at 9 p.m., and Sunday at 3 p.m., Sunday the 28th. So uh, that is a show that is directed by uh, my wife, Lynn, and featuring, yes, the former kids' film correspondent, Emma Sosi. So there you go. Joining me in studio, the best-dressed member of the Indiana Film Journalists Association and film yaffer for life. And, of course, you can see him on Indie Style, outdressing Tracy Forner. You and Tom Alvarez, I think, have a battle. But that's Christopher Lloyd right over there. Good to be here. Man who makes vest fashionable. Well, the thing is, the vest is fashionable, and I'm just, you know, I'm just like the guy in the vest. I'm not like, making a statement. <laughs> right, exactly. So it, it's like it's like classic cars. I'm not, you know, it's like I'm not. I don't drive them to make a statement. I just want to show off the car, and I'm just the guy driving. How how is the car? Which one? The, okay, the one that we've been seeing posts on. The the one I saw you with last time that you would we were working on at the black one, right? The the Cadillac. Yeah, the Cadillac. Yeah, the, I've owned the Cadillac for nine months now, and I think I've actually physically had it in my possession five weeks of that. Yeah, just in the shop. Lots of stuff to do on. 50-year-old cars. Exactly. So, all right. So, as we said, you can see stuff at Fringe. Now, normally, August is usually known as a as kind of a down month because we're after the, you know, we're in the aftermath of the summer blockbuster season, and it's months before we get in the grown-up movie season, and there's also a lot of films that have been on the shelf for a while, and the studios need to put something out there, so they just kind of throw it out there. But, but there are also exceptions to the rule, and usually... Usually they're smaller films, although uh, I, I know when we were on No Limits, we talked about really bad summer at the multiplexes. Yeah. But in the art house summer, pretty yeah. good. Yeah. 
And I, I think we've seen kind of seen a counter-programming thing start to happen over the last four or five years, I think beginning with the Planet of the Apes movies. You know, they came out in August, uh, District 9 from a few years ago. Even further back, I remember like the remake that I really of the Thomas Crown Affair yeah. was an August release. Yeah, so I think there's been a, a conscious effort for people to say, hey, let's take some of these films. They're maybe a little more edgy, a little more, you know, got a little bit more of an ambition to them. And we'll put them in August and they'll find an audience after all of the Ghostbusters and sequels and remakes and Star all that Trek's stuff. Star Trek's and so. all those have petered out. Right, exactly. So, and we have one for you, ladies and gentlemen. And this is great because we, we saw this a long, a while back. So, kudos to uh, Indie Film Fest for setting this up for us. And, and we, we mentioned a little bit because it was the closing film at the festival, but now it is open in theaters uh, Hell or High Water. Yeah. And uh, a modern western. Uh, it's it's it is basically two films, but you have four solid characters, four solid performances along the way. Um, Chris, could you tell folks about the plot? Uh, so uh, Chris Pine and uh, Ben Foster play brothers in Hard Scrabble, West Texas, and they are, as the story begins, they are robbing banks like two or three a day, little banks, just grabbing the cash, not going for the vaults, just little little money things, and they look like random small time things so you know the FBI is not touching it so it lands on the desk of this uh grizzled Texas Ranger played by Jeff Bridges who is literally like a week from retirement again yes and he has clearly burned out on the job a long time ago you know he he does not have a care left to give and he and his partner played by Gil Birmingham you know sort of reluctantly start you know making the rounds begrudgingly interviewing people you know he's bored by it but over time he starts to get interested. The juices start flowing. And, you know, he, he really wants to go out um, with a bang. And so it ends up being this really, you know, it, it's what I love about this movie is it really is, you know, it takes its time. It never feels like it's in a hurry. Correct. You have, you know, little scenes that just are embellished a little bit more. Minor characters are polished to a high sheen. You know, it, 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 and yet the film constantly, the pot, the pot is constantly boiling. Tensions are ratcheting up. It's just, you know. The, the two, I always say, the two hardest things to do in movies are tone and pacing, and this film just nails both of them. Absolutely, and this is a, I, this is a term I use quite often, uh, probably not often mm-hmm. enough. It's it's a slow paced film. It's not a slow film. Yeah, it's not a Terrence Malick picture. Yeah, um, but yeah, you, you, there's. It's funny you met, we mentioned the Bridges character. Um, I, I need to make a list of. The, the highest activity for the po- movie police officers who are the closest to their retirement day. And I think of Robert Duvall in Falling Down. I think it was like his last day was him dealing with Michael Douglas's character, so with defense. Uh, but I think it bridges the character in this one. It was probably in the team picture with a week to go. Yeah, it really is. And the relationship between him and the Gil Birmingham character is, is interesting. Uh, it's scratchy. <laughs> like the, the the Jeff Bridges character, who's you know really kind of this like you know old school Western dude, he teases the guy about his heritage, which is Mexican and Comanche. So there's two strikes against him in Bridges' yeah, eyes, you know. And I mean, he's really you know, sort of, kind of like nastily toned, you know, digs at him, which the partner just takes in stride and kind of th- you know picks him up and throws him back at him. Uh, so it's a really interesting relationship there. Um, and I, I just like this whole idea of a guy, you know, over the course of literally just a couple of three days, being transferred to someone who has punched his clock and is out the door mentally. To he really, really wants to to nail this case and nail these guys and go out in a blaze of glory because he's just he's terrified of sitting on his porch with no purpose in life. Exactly. You know, he's a widower, and 
I mean, that is something, you know, having been in the business world now for a few years and dealing with older folks who are on the verge of retiring, that is a real thing, like depression that these yep. old people go through when they're retiring, that they, they can't figure out what to do with themselves, which, you know, you or I, you know, we're at that stage of life where, like, you know, I would retire tomorrow if I could, gladly. Right. But, but well, at, least, no... at least from at least from, you know, other stuff, not from movie stuff. No, I would be the guy that if I won the lottery, I would still do my shows because yeah. then I have I have I have money to back me up if things go really <laughs> weird. Um, Terrific movie. Um, uh, it is. It, I, I'm I'm really calling it my favorite film of the year so far. Uh, I'll put this. I call it the best film of the year so far. My favorite film is probably uh, um, Everybody Wants Some, just because it's so distinctive. But just in terms of, I mean, that's the, the sort of movie well, that I'm going to get to that in a that, second. Not so many. That sort of movie is not going to get you know awards in the awards cycle. But it's your list, and you're sticking with it. Um, yeah, I really like the 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 camaraderie between the two characters, um, and I can't remember who. Wrote, I'm, I'm sure other people have mentioned it as well. But the the relationship between Ben Foster and Chris Pine, they are brothers. Pine is. Uh, I think Ed, our our buddy Ed Johnson not talked about how he was not really distracted by Chris Pine's gorgeous blue eyes. Yeah. with under the uh, under the cowboy stubble. It's a really gritty performance. I think the best of Chris Pine's career. It's re- and it's really cool because I I think of when actors do stuff outside the franchise, like yeah. like uh, Roger Moore doing non Bond or Daniel Craig doing non, and in this case for him non Star Trek, and and they've been they've been okay. This is this is the best of that lot, I think. And Ben Foster, he's a classic. He, I mean, he's he's we've memorized him. Obviously, he was a that guy, but he he always makes fascinating choices. It's not about opening in three thousand theaters. He just wants to do some good work. Yeah, he 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 really is an actor in that Robert Duvall mode. You know, true character actor, never seeks the limelight, but is always great when he's in the limelight. Yep. Uh, you know, the sort of guy that I you know. You, you know, I, I'm looking forward to four decades more of roles with, from him. Absolutely, and the, and the film is directed by David McKenzie, a, a, a gentleman from England. And I was like, the one film of his I have seen is Young Adam. Oh yeah. Some some of you uh, ladies and a few dudes, if you want to see Ewan McGregor, there you go, and uh, Tilda Swinton. And it's also written by um, Taylor Sheridan, who is known as an actor, but really, really got a lot of praise last year. He was the writer, the screenwriter for Sicario, uh, another. Dusty, dirty, sun-filled, uh, sun-baked uh, crime drama in its own in its own right. Yeah, uh, I didn't like that film nearly as much, um, just because I felt like it. You know, whereas you know, Hell or High Water, you know, really is about these three or four characters. It's really on focus and it just moves along. Sicario is just sort of like like it never. You know, you got to the end of the movie and it's like, who's the main character? It didn't feel like a true ensemble film it felt like a film that was trying to decide who to focus on i think it was more about who was you know the further uh the emily blunt character went down who could yeah. she trust and who is she really going after yeah but yeah the uh but on paper we've seen people rob banks we've seen cop you know police officers on their uh, you know on the verge of retirement and and being grizzled and crusty and yeah uh jeff bridges borrowed his uh, rooster cogburn voice once again uh, as the the but yeah. uh, Feel, sounds like he's chewing his cud all the time when right, he's speaking literally and figuratively and uh and i should we should mention gil birmingham is is now uh, a favorite here in indianapolis because he actually showed up at the Indie Film Fest. Yes, and did tons of interviews for 
everybody. And if you look, he's he's again, he's another like that guy. I know he was probably the biggest thing he was in before this. He was uh, Billy in the in the Twilight, Twilight films. But, you know, yeah, a lot of obviously a lot of chiefs and a lot of Native American roles. But the fact that he got to. Uh, you know, watching him in Jeff Bridges, that's that's a this is one of those films. I can't wait to see the deleted scenes because there's got to be a lot of scenes of both pairs of actors just bouncing off each other like a tennis yeah, match. When I interviewed him, you know, what I talked about it was like, you know, outwardly, it almost seemed like those guys hate each other. Like if you were like watching them from a distance and just overhearing them, you'd be like, my God, those guys can't stand each other. But I think the actors really, you know, acted, you know, in between the dialogue. And, you know, showed us that there was a warmth and a love there that neither man really, you know, could express in words. And uh, without giving away too much, when we get to, you know, the, the course, the big question is when do the two storylines meet? If they do, it also addresses uh, uh, we and we in the audience, the, the, the doughy white film critics, we were kind of chuckling out loud as to how the last big climactic uh incident happens yeah a little social commentary but enough to make it funny that we and, and i didn't see it coming and i probably should have yeah. it's um it, it's like if you took the if you took the big heist from heat and turned it on its head a little bit um and then a really nice ending between uh the two storylines i mean it, it's a, just a really well done grown-up movie and and it should not be missed Best film of the year so far. There you go. So yeah, and, and now, yes, we know we're and it'll hold that title for a while before we get into the Oscar season. I understand, right. but man, it's it's definitely worth checking out. And uh, and that's the only one I got to see this week. So I wanted to ask, um, what's the runner up? Is it uh, is it Kubo and the Two Strings? Speaking of best of, um, I am easily easy for me to anoint Kubo and the Two Strings as my favorite animated film of the year. Just kind of because we've had a lot of you know pretty good. Animated films, but nothing, know, nothing. Finding Dory, you know, etc. No, nothing has really blown me away, and this blew me away. And it's wow. I literally now this is from Leica. This is the stop motion animation studio behind the Box Trolls Coraline, and Coraline, right. Paranorman. So, and I think it's funny that that's now become a style. If you're talking to kids, you know, what is it? Well, it looks like yeah, this the Box Trolls. Very, right. they tend to do very dark stories, imaginative sort of you know dark imagination. And the thing about their films is. There truly are movies that adults will enjoy as much or more as kids. Um, and I, I was watching this in the theater. I, I literally was halfway through it before I realized it was stop motion. Mm. Um, I, I could not even tell. Uh, I mean, there's scenes on oceans and you know clouds and storms and magic and all sorts of things. It's set in medieval Japan. And you have this one-eyed boy who's essentially an orphan. He lives with his mother, but his mother is essentially catatonic, barely even talks. Um, and he has this – but she tells these stories when she is lucid – about their family, and his father is the moon god, the moon king, and he has evil sisters, and his father was killed by them, and the boy only has one eye, and his grandfather stole his other eye. So, you know, sounds really creepy, and it is, but you know, they, they do a good job of keeping it on a kid's level. Um, there are some scary parts in it. Um, I would take, I would not take really, really small kids to see this. The way I put it is I would take my five-year-old to see this. I would not take my three-year-old to see this. Would it be more comfortable watching it at home? Probably, definitely. There, there's a lot of those that, you, yeah. that can make that transition. And the boy, you know, he has magic through his um, traditional Japanese banjo, and when he plays, he has these pieces of origami paper that come to life and, you know, act out the stories that he's telling for the audience. Uh, and then he... Uh, ends up getting exiled through, you know, won't give away too much of the plot there. And he had this little wooden monkey charm in his pocket that his mother gave him, and it comes alive, and it's voiced by Charlize Theron. 
I was, was going to say, are we going to have two vocal tracks on this? Yes. The, the Hollywood track and no, the... no. This is actually an American-made film, made okay. in, made in America and Canada. I think also they did some work there, but it's 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 like something out of ancient Japan by way of 21st century American artist. And okay, Matthew McConaughey does the voice of this strange bug warrior. He has no memory, so he doesn't. All he knows, all he knows is that I was a samurai and I was cursed. Uh, and he does some really nice work with absolutely not a drop of Texas in his accent at all. I love the fact that I think Matthew just took it because he could be a bug warrior. Yeah, bug warrior. So I I love this movie. My favorite favorite animated film of the year. See, there you go. Two two, two. films in August. In we're August. Checking. So you have really no excuses. And apparently it's going to rain this weekend. Um, now I, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, it's really not competing with the the original but they they made a remake of ben-hur and it came out in august why yeah why so, would they do this so they did not screen it for us um this is part of the tradition which is becoming a you know a, a really mainstream things of faith-based studios making pictures with you know either not necessarily overt but at least you know subtle christian themes it, it's usually christian you don't I'm not, we're not seeing too many like episcopalian studio based give us time studios yeah <laughs> Uh, you know, the Methodist studios, but uh, um, so it's 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 a more religious take on it. I talked to a guy who did see it last night. And so he said, so Gore Vidal didn't do the screenplay. No, I, I did talk to a guy who saw it last night, and he said he saw it with a faith based audience, and they really went crazy for it. Wow, really enjoyed it. Jack Houston plays Ben Hur in this, um, and Morgan Freeman is kind of like his you know consigliere, giving you know, standing by his ear and giving him advice. Uh, and you know, did he also provide the voice of God? No, <laughs> but um, so I believe you know this is for you know obviously a much smaller epic scale of you know the Charlton Heston Ben Hur, but you know for these faith based films, I think this is probably one of their largest budget films ever. So unfortunately, that's all I can tell you about it. Okay, I, I just wish they would start actually showing news to us. I mean, like, uh, what was the one with Jennifer Garner from a couple, three months um, ago? Yeah, was it Miracles from Heaven, I yeah, think? Yeah, and it did very, very well. You know, and has mainstream stars in it doing well. Um, you know, I remember there was a, uh, a one a few, last year, actually, uh, the, with a little boy who has this imagination, and I, I had to track them down and beg them to let me see a screener of it. Um, so I, I think I think it's it's one of those that they're afraid that the you know the heathen film critics that would be us um, yeah. are, are going to tear it apart. But I, if I remember, and I and I, I know our colleague Richard Probst would back up up on this. I have to find the article. I remember posting, it, but it was just like just make the films better. And it yeah. sounds like they are. Um, yeah, I mean you're seeing mainstream directors, mainstream and actors, actors starring these things. I mean, so it's 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 sort of like you know 25 years ago when you started seeing. Major movie stars doing voices for cartoon movies. You know, right. that was not something they did before. Correct. So, so that's that's out there. And then uh, and then we heard a review. I heard a review of this on Fresh Air from the director of the the Hangover series. We have yeah. War Dogs with yes, Academy Award nominated actor Jonah Hill twice, twice nominated and, and deserved neither and, and, time. No and Miles Tenner, um, not because he's not good, but just you know. It, it, you and you have made this analogy before, and, and I think it's very true. Is getting nominated for an Oscar is like getting picked for the NBA All Star team. It's hard to get over that hump, but once you're nominated the first time, then it's a lot easier <laughs> to get nominated again. It's just like, oh, he's on the team before. Let's put him on there again. Right. So you get him nominated for Moneyball, which I mean, he was not. He's really. I think he was quite nice. good. <laughs> so his nominations make your high, voice higher. Yeah. What about I don't know. Wall Street? I don't know. He's he's got some nice tools in his toolkit, but he over relies on a few of them. 
like you know he does this thing with like this sort of vacant stare and i see i've seen him pull that out in a lot of movies where it's like he's looking at somebody and talking to them but he's sort of staring through them and it's a nice it's a nice little thing he does but you know it's sort of showing the moral vacuum of his characters interesting that all of his characters do seem to have moral vacuums well, um, you, you know, then then it was he, then again, John Wayne played Genghis Khan once. Yeah, he he tries to he's trying to be a little too Joe Pesci, and the thing is, he will always be funnier than Joe Pesci, but he will never be as scary or intimidating as Joe Pesci. Right, and uh, someone needs to tell him that. Um, Miles Teller co-stars in this with him, and he's I think you know one of my favorite actors of that gener his, his generation, the under thirty set right now. Um, it's a it's a fun movie to begin with. You know, we think they're going to go down, you know, down that sort of bromance, crude comedy, and it, it really is for the first half or so. The last act that they try to go to Goodfellas and uh, make it all about you know the, the music by there's a music montage of Nilsson, Muddy yeah, Waters, you know, and, George Harrison. You know, the, the the trap is slowly you know creeping in, and you know, and they start eyeing each other, and it's like 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 you know. Um, De Niro and the other guy, like who's going to betray who first? Right. Um, yeah, it kind of the last, you know, forty minutes or so just kind of goes off trails, but it's it's an it's an interesting effort. Okay, so see, you have you have interesting efforts in two really solid films, yeah. and Ben Hur. So that's that is all out there. Also, um, August twenty first through the twenty fourth at the JCC is the Israeli Film Festival. Yeah. of note, and 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 one that's airing. Of course, this depends on when you're listening to this. Sunday at three o'clock, uh, Sabina hijacking my version, and it's it's uh, undiscovered audio recordings of the flight cap, the pilot on flight five seventy one during Black September during the seventy two Munich uh, Munich Games. So that I mean that's that's definitely worth checking out. Also, films like The Green Prince on the twenty first at six p.m., uh, Apples from the Desert on Monday the twenty second at seven p.m., The Kind Words Tuesday the twenty third at seven p.m., and uh, Mikonen, The Journey of an African Jew Wednesday the twenty fourth at seven p.m. So you can go to uh, the JCC Indianapolis or uh, jccindy.org slash Israeli Film Festival. A couple other notes, and uh, again, depending on when you're listening to this, on Spanguli, Saturday nights at 10 on MeTV, they're showing The Black Castle. I always find, if I find titles, Chris has a really fun uh, column called uh, Reeling Back, and, and occasionally I find old titles and just throw them at them. Because it's 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 my version of hey you know you know what you should write about you should write about this yeah and I, I I have a list it's constantly updated it consists of like stuff that I've DVR'd off of you know uh, TCM or my Netflix queue or my Amazon Prime queue or HBO Go or you know whatever it's it's literally like a hundred and fifty films long at any given point so I'm like, what can I say you know. It's it's a wonder wonderful list that I will never reach the end of. And if he gets a broken leg, he'll cut, he'll do some catch up time. So, <laughs> all right. Um, also at the historic Art Craft Theater Saturday, August twentieth at seven thirty p.m. with a live score from the Franklin Chamber Players, the Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera. Wow, and that is a great. If you've ever been in the Art Craft, just a yep. great, great old old timey classic theater. Amazing place. That's a really cool experience, especially with live accompaniment. So that, that's a can't miss. Also, at the Artcraft, August 26th and August 27th at 2 and 7.30 p.m., both times, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, of course. And then um, September 23rd and 24th, also at the Artcraft, Hoosiers, because that's what you do here in Indiana. All right, moving over to the drive-in. Um have I done? Have I done the weird drive-in pairings question with you? No, I don't think so. Have you ever? I mean, 
uh, and I bring this up because this is, and this was a long time ago. We, I always inquire with people who've been to the drive-in that have had an odd billing, <laughs> and it started with because I remember a friend who saw um, Arthur because it, it had just come out uh, with Dudley Moore, and because they found another Dudley Moore film to put up against it, Ten. Oh yeah, not quite the family evening. Um, yeah. So and back then you could show two year old movies as the uh, as the second half, but uh, anyway. And so so sometimes we have to look and see why are these films put together, and sometimes they're easier than others. Uh, over at the Tibbs, well, we have War Dogs and Suicide Squad, an R rated action film and an action film that should have been R rated. Yeah, I mean those those actually kind of go together. Yeah, those will go well. And then we have two R rated comedies, Sausage Party and Bad Moms. Yep. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, screen three, we have Lights Out and then Jason Bourne. Okay. Maybe the same studio. I don't know. And then, yeah, here we go. Pete's Dragon and The Secret Life of Pets. Those, oh, there those you make go. Sense. So two PG animated. Although well, semi-animated. Would, in that case, I would leave after the first movie. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't like Secret Life of Pets? No? Yeah. It, was, it was like the Angry Birds movie, which is also out on video this week. It's just sort of, you know, not very ambitious animation specifically for kids. It's cute critters, gastrointestinal humor. I mean, it's like, you know, it, there's literally like a, a checklist that you can just sit there and, you know, titch off as you're going down it. It's the sort of movie that you wait for it on video because now you can put it in the in the Blu-ray player, hit play, and go to the next room for an hour and a half while your kids are entertained. Did um, your kids in Angry Birds? My kids love Angry Birds. Oh gosh. I've had so you, there's no I, avoiding it for you. I've I've had the uh, my review copy of the the disc for probably about two and a half or three weeks, and I think they've watched it five times in that wow. space. Yeah, and probably would have watched more if I hadn't said, "Can we watch some Star Wars or something?" <laughs> instead. Now the only thing that's I I didn't see it, but the only thing that intrigued me, Sean Penn does a voice. Yeah, now, is he, he does, funny? Is he good? Is I wrote about this in my review. It's not even a voice. So he plays this character. I can't remember what his name is, but so he's he he actually the strange thing is he looks exactly like the main character, who is this little angry red bird with the big thick eyebrows that Jason Sudeikis does the voice of. Okay, they take that character and make him like seventeen times as big. So he's just great big round muscle of red muscly bird <laughs> flesh, um, and he's you know really scary. And he never says anything. All he does is just glare at people and just make you know, like groaning noises. So it's like literally, like you know, like they'll like they'll ask him a question and he'll just turn at them and go like, "Oh my gosh!" And, and that's what? the I'm, entire performance. I'm guessing what five hundred thousand dollars for that? Yeah, I really, you know, he, you know, he 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 hit the method actor nirvana of getting paid to grunt. Wow, Brando would be proud. He would be. Brando would be Brando really proud. Brando would really like that. And apparently, yeah, I've read, I've read some. There's some animated film that Brando did before he died that has never seen the light of day. No, so I didn't know that. Look on that. Um, yeah, it, it reminds me of. Although I know he's not a fan, but when uh, when South Park was able to get George Clooney to do a voice, and they just had him as a dog. Yeah, and just barking. <laughs> that's all. When you when you enter their world, you just do what they say. So, all right, over at the um, the Skyline Drive In in Shelbyville, yes, we have Suicide Squad. Well, first we have Star Trek Beyond at eight forty five, and then eleven p.m. Suicide Squad. And I love at one fifteen a.m. They always throw something out of out of nowhere, and I, this is one I have not even seen from nineteen seventy three, Pets with Ed Bishop, Joan Blackman, and Candace Rawlson. See if see if these sound familiar. Don't search for this at work. 
Naive but brash and sultry teenage runaway Bonnie, played by a 20-something actor, finds herself lost and adrift in America. The lovely young lass runs afoul of colorful array of evil oddballs who treat her like an object. Yeah, that's kind of, you can see where this is going, early 70s uh, drive-in fair. Oh, boy. And so, of course, I go on, I'm like, well, sorry, of course I go on to IMDb for work purposes only. Um, directed by Raphael Nussbaum, who is also known for, he only did nine films, uh, Blazing Sand, The Invisible Terror, uh, Commando Sinai, The Amorous Adventures of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. Don't look that up. Uh, Death Blow, A Cry for Justice, and Speak of the Devil, all 60s, 70s, and 80s drive-in material there. So, yeah, that's out there. Yeah, see, that that's a young person's <laughs> film schedule there. What, 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 when's the 115 the show? I, I used to do that back in the day when I was college summers. I worked at a movie theater, surprise, surprise, yes. in my native Orlando. You're, you're, our, you're our history consultant on this one. Yes, so, like, literally, we would, like, shut down our theater at 1230, drive out to Disney. They had a nice theater out there called Pleasure Island, and they would have, like, 115, 120, 130 shows Watch a movie, you know, get home. Were they pets? No, no, <laughs> no nothing like that. Mainstream stuff. <laughs> you know, go drive around, get home at 4 o'clock in the morning, get oh, up the next gosh, day, do it all over you again. can't do that. So, all right, shifting gears. Uh, actually, we have half the DVD Blu-rays taken care of because we already mentioned Angry Birds movie is out, God's Not Dead 2. Uh, Melissa Joan Hart is involved in that. A uh, couple old titles that are on Blu-ray, if you need these on Blu-ray. Uh, Buckaroo Banzai, wow. which I thought was already out on Blu-ray, or in some form I of special w- colossal edition. Yeah, this might just be the, the new Fine. version. And then, um, if you need this on Blu-ray, probably not, but it's still pretty good. The John Carpenter-directed Elvis the, oh, yeah. the TV movie with, with, Kurt Russell, with Kurt Russell, which I remember seeing in 1979, is really, really good. This is the film Carpenter did after Halloween yeah. and before The Thing. Escape. Yeah, before The Thing. So really solid performance from, from Kurt Russell. This is the film that really turned him from young actor to an adult. Right. So that is out there. Um, and then I thought this was uh, – no, again, this is one of those – of course, it, with Blu-rays, they kind of repackage things and throw them out here. But but I, I had to bring uh, – not too often I get to bring up enough – bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Yes. One of Peckinpah's uh, gems that uh, got tinkered by the studio but is a solid, dusty, dirty movie if there ever was one. Yeah, I just featured that in the Reeling Backward column not too long ago. Did you enjoy it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's great. And this this kind of I think that's a film that kind of puts where you um you you find out where you are on the film spectrum. For instance, um the Medved brothers, Michael and the other one. Um I and I think this was before he went bat spit crazy, but they did like the fifty worst films of all time, I think in the mid seventies, and this film made it on that list. But then again, Roger Ebert thought it was a damn near masterpiece. Yeah. Uh and that film, you know, Warren Oates. Uh, and his most Warren Oatsy. His most Warren Oatsy. And he wears almost throughout the entire film these really appalling sunglasses, <laughs> which I've read were actually Peckinpah's own sunglasses which, that he took from him. Yeah. And just just wore, you know, without asking and just wore it through the rest of the movie. Oats is, uh, you know, uh, I think of William Holden in in uh, The Wild Bunch as kind of being the the definitive Peck and Paul doppelganger. I think it's really Warren Oates and Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. Yeah, I mean those glasses. I, I can't forget them. It, yep. it, it's, it's sort of like the episode of Seinfeld where like those are ladies' glasses. 
Right, exactly. Um, so anyway, that is out on Blu-ray. And I forgot to bring this up last week, but I was intrigued because the Tom Hanks film A Hologram for the King came out, written and directed by Tom Twyker, who, who yeah. gave us Run Lola Run, Run Lola Run, which I really liked, and then Perfume, which I really hated. Yeah. And this was a film that kind of – Tom Hanks films the last almost 30 years – have been an event. Yeah, and I mean, ninety nine percent. It came out, it came and went. No screenings, no fanfare. And I, I think it was gone within a week. Yeah, I found out it's this. Is, it is the smallest opening weekend for a Tom Hanks film since every time we say goodbye, an Israeli made film in the mid eighties. And I actually remember that film. This one's it's not bad. Really? He, he plays a, a businessman who's kind of. Uh, he's he's not doing well in life or in business, so he's he's thrown out to Saudi Arabia to do a deal where the king wants to have this um, go out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert, to have a giant mega city, and he's got uh, only three tech people, and it's him, and he can't get time one on one time with the king because he's traveling all over the world. So the the and I was concerned because the first half of the film is kind of a fish out of water story, which we've seen countless times before but there are little moments and it really kicks in in the second half of how much of Hanks's life is in a shambles with his divorce and his teen, his daughter who was supposed to go to college but they don't have the funding for it and then there's a relationship that's really nice and I, I, I'm terrible because I cannot remember the name of the actress who I first saw in Mississippi Masala who plays a doctor that helps out Hanks um, and, it be, and it becomes more about those two it's really really fun to watch almost a Susan, Sar- uh, um, yeah, Susan Sarandon, J.K. Simmons relationship in the Meddler, where um, you're just you just enjoy watching these two people, and it's it's kind of a nice little picture. It's just nobody saw it, so it, it, it's just weird for someone as big as Hanks to be doing. Yeah, that. it actually happens all the time with mainstream stars. You know, I get things in the mail or you know emails about you know they're like, hey, this movie's coming out, and it's got like these big names in it, household names, Oscar nominated or even winning right. performers, and it's, it just went straight to video, or in, you know, in the case of this movie. Almost straight to video. Mm -hmm. And uh, also a couple titles I wanted to bring up from uh, the film movement. This is for uh, endearingly called the movie of the month club that we get uh, some of us get quite often. And there's a there's a documentary called Mad Tiger, and it's about a Japanese rock band in New York City. Each have their own Crayola color-esque character, yellow, green, blue, that sort of thing. And they, they, you know, what they lack in musicianship, they make up in shows. They have human bowling mo- bowling matches and crowd surfing and gymnastics and limbo. And they've been just kind of slugging it out in New York for years and years and years. And it's what happens when one of the founding members, the, the band leader is yellow, but what happens when his uh, bandmate, Red, is uh, going to leave the group. So, um it's, yeah, it's subtitled, but it, and it's it's more about a band. It doesn't just happen to be a Japanese band, but watching a band when you know a founding member is going away and trying to replace him, and what's going to happen with the band. I mean, it was. Um, I'm a I'm a big fan of music documentaries of all kinds, and I think the, the thing is, if you enjoy the film and not necessarily enjoy the music, um, great example, Metallica, some kind of monster. You don't have to be a Metallica fan to dig of, of watching four millionaires tearing each other apart. <laughs> um, this is a much smaller version of that. And then there's a documentary. It's it's less than 80 minutes. It's short and to the point. It's called Ember's Left Hand, and it's about uh, painter John Ember and what happens when he starts to develop ALS. And it, it follows a, a span of, I think, of about a year, even going to uh, having to learn to paint with his left hand and uh, keeping the, 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 the paint 
flawed and all, even moments of having to take the canvas and flipping it over because that's what he would do if he was painting with his other hand. Um, so, and knowing that this is his life will eventually end, um, I think banged out like 200 paintings when he found out he had ALS. Wow. So another one, I, I, I'm a sucker for obviously films about artists and the process and uh, watching him have to adjust his work. And, and there's a little bit of biography mixed in with him trying to paint. And, and of course, as time goes on, it becomes more and more. Uh, difficult. So anyway, those are a couple of films. If you go to Film Movement, you can check those out as well. Um, I want to get to uh, Dead People We Like because, mm-hmm. as you once said, we don't have to – well, Kobe said we don't have time for Dead People We Don't Like. Um, that's I, a whole other show. That's a fun moment. But anyway, um, and I, I wanted to ask you this because, um, of course, actor – we start with uh, actor Kenny Baker – who is best known as R2-D2, among other things. And we'll get to the filmography. But it really bugged me when a lot of news sources would show a photo of R2-D2 and not him. Yeah, like just the outside and not like right. the, the famous photo of him inside the costume with the head but off even, e- eating a sandwich. Even if you showed that, right. show, show the guy for crying out loud. He's been entertaining us for decades. Yeah, it, it's sort of the equivalent, the cinematic journalism equivalent of, you know, like those headlines where it's like, you know, uh, you know, so and so guy wins bronze, and this subhead is oh. like you know, girl wins gold. Or yeah. yeah, I think I think in Chicago it was you know, Chicago Bears wife wins gold medal. Went really, really. Yeah, or sport. I remember Sports Illustrated back when Tiger was still a thing. Literally, it was he 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 missed winning the Masters, and some other guy did, and they still put Tiger on the cover. Yep. So <laughs> come on, guys. So anyway, but going back, of course. Um, First title, first uncredited title in 1960, of course, playing a dwarf in Circus of Horrors, yeah. which sounds like a, a Hammer horror film. I, I'm not sure if it is. Um, Wombling Free in 1978. Of course, 77 was the start of him playing R2-D2. Also played a dwarf in Flash Gordon, but that requires me thinking about Flash Gordon again, and I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> he was also in The Elephant Man with uh, the David Lynch film, produced by, I love this trivia, Mel Brooks. Not no. Yep. Uh, of course, played Fidget and Time, Time Bandits. Bandits yeah. um, play, was it was the parody Commodore in Amadeus? Also appeared in Neil Jordan's uh, Mona Lisa. Played the uh, member of the Goblin Corps in Labyrinth. Um, was also a part of Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theaters back in the eighties. If you have those, uh, played the Elf in Sleeping Beauty. And was the voice of Captain Orton in the animated, I can't believe we, we made an animated version of The King and I yeah. from 1999. So, Kenny, thank you so much. And apparently, we, as we found out through news reports, Anthony Daniels, not a nice guy. <laughs> Way to go. So, anyway, we have two items from that. Salute to, to Kenny and, come on, dude, lighten up. Yeah. Um, also, speaking of that, guys, um, actor Fivish Finkel yeah. passed away at the age of 93. And this was a gentleman who goes, all the way back to the Yiddish theater days. Yeah. Um, probably best known for his appearances on the series Picket Fences and Boston Public. Also had a role in the movie A Serious Man. Yes, I was. Yeah, and so when, of course, when you're known best for television, I of course want to see what films he worked on. Um, and this is one I haven't seen. I've always, and I don't, I don't think it's even in print anymore. The 1986 drama Seize the Day, which had Robin Williams as a traveling salesman. Hmm, and it was after it was after World According to Garp, before Good Morning Vietnam. It was one of those. I mean, it just kind of came and went at the same time. Uh, of course, played Mr. Greenblatt in the film version of Brighton Beach Memoirs. Uh, uh, Preston Perlstein in the underrated uh, Sidney Lumet crime drama Q and A. 
Um, was in the Paul uh, Buranowski film The Pickle uh, for Love or Money. Played Murray Chanter and Nixon. You mentioned uh, Serious Man, of course, and The Crew. So uh, thank you to Mr. Finkel for that. And then this week, director Arthur Hiller. Right. Probably best known, he got an Academy Award nomination for Love Story. Um, this was a guy not, you know, it, not it maybe... You, not not a, not a Shakespeare or not a Shakespeare, not a Scorsese, not a Kurosawa. You know, there is no Arthur Hiller style, except everything I've heard. Actors love to work with him. Yeah, and he, you know, he had a very varied career. Kind of operated in that thing of you know, slightly comedic to you know, not too dark drama. Like I said, not Scorsese, as you say. You know, sort of any popular mainstream films. Um, you mentioned Love Story. Did a uh, Al lot of TV. Yeah, Al Pacino movie, author, author. Yep. Uh, 80s movie, Nick Nolte, Teachers. I remember Jobeth seeing that. Williams. And salutes Joe Beth Williams in that. See No Evil, Hear No Evil, and he also directed... Um, Silver Streak. So, so he directed Wilder and Pryor twice. Yeah, uh, and uh, John Goodman playing Babe Ruth in Ooh. The Babe. Oh, gosh. Which William is, Bendix is a, a little relieved now with that. Yeah, f John, John Goodman famously had to lose weight to plays. <laughs> <laughs> so, but other films we go from 1963, Miracle of the White Stallions. Uh, of course, the 1964, The Americanization of Emily, written by Patty Chayefsky. Um, also, uh, Alan Arkin in Poppy, the original Out of Towners. We mentioned Love Story, the film version of Plaza Suite with Walter Matthau. And then uh, a couple of his films that, and I, I wound up watching these this week. Um, from 1971, the other great Patty Chayefsky script, The Hospital, mm. with George C. Scott and Diana Rigg, and uh, full disclosure, my dad, my dad was in the medical field, he, physician, he was a doctor, and uh, this was not only one of his favorite films, but it was also one of my first introductions to dark comedy. I got to see Harold and Maude and The Hospital at a fairly young age. <laughs> Explains a lot, but it, but it shows, and, and George C. Scott. This is a year after. He turned down the Best Actor Award for Patton, and he gets nominated a year later. Yeah. He's that good. Yeah. He's a chief surgeon who's depressed, divorced, suicidal, and doesn't feel he's making a difference anymore. And it kind of, to a certain degree, it's like Nolte's character in Teachers. Um, I think Teachers is a lighter version of the hospital, even though it's R-rated, of uh, of the people that just want to do their job. They don't want to deal with the bureaucracy. They don't want to deal with the, you know, with the with the family, with the red tape. Um, and and for Scott's character, it's about healing people. But there's everything from a a, a doctor who's accidentally killed because he's uh, he had a tryst with a nurse in a bed, and when he fell asleep, the nurse came in and put a. Yeah, put an IV into him because they thought he was a patient. There's a character who comes in perfectly healthy and then loses a kidney within days because of miscommunication because uh, because things are going are, are going south. And there's a a protest sequence because some uh, some slums are being torn down for a new medical center. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's a really if you're in the dark comedy. And oh, by the way, there's there's also a dancing Native American and there's a murderer in the building. So <laughs> that's a solid solid film. Um, also did the followed that up with yes the second of the two musicals starring Peter O'Toole, Man of La Mancha, uh -huh. with Sophia Loren and James Coco. Um, this was another one of his films I saw at a young age with Dad. The Man in the Glass Booth, written mm -hmm. by Robert Shaw, uh, Rod Steiger playing W. C. Fields and W. C. Fields and Me. Silver Streak we talk about. The other one, this just came out on Criterion and I bought it and it really is one of the more underrated comedies I think for me. Period, but also one of the best comedies of the 1970s, The In Laws. Oh, yeah. With Peter Falk and Alan Arkin. 
Um, I was telling Emma, we the, the Sosi family got to see Central Intelligence earlier this year. Got, Funny. To, got to see. And I said, you know, that film's father is the in-laws yeah. of, of two people thrown together, one unwillingly thrown into a really convoluted, difficult plot, and the other saying everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, really, really fun stuff and well worth it on Criterion. Uh, Nightwing, which I remember seeing in theaters, a killer bat movie. Making Love. This was um, yeah. Kate Jackson, Michael Onkeen, and um, Harry Hamlin. And this is a film that's brought up quite a bit in, uh, or it's brought up very well in the documentary The Celluloid Closet. 20th Century Fox in 1982 was going to make a serious drama about a, a married couple, Jackson, and um, I say it's Hamlin. No, uh, Onkeen. And uh, Onkeen's finally has an affair with another man. Yeah. And uh, there's a fun story of uh, ownership of 20th Century Fox turned over and this, the head of the screen, of the studio with his family watched the movie and, and kind of got up and left yeah. right afterwards. So, oops. You mentioned author, author. There's also a romantic comedy. Another underrated comedy, The Lonely Guy with Steve Martin. Oh, yeah. Um, teachers, you mentioned Outrageous Fortune with Bette Midler and Shelley Long. Um, yeah, and then it kind of dips a little bit. Yes, he was in he was the director of the film an Ali Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, and then he hated it and he changed his name to Alan Smithy. Right. So anyway, Arthur Hiller, thank you, sir. We appreciate that. Um I wanna go over something that Chris posted on online on social media. You you had now what what causes you had a list of films that you said you have never seen. It was literally just a whim. Uh it was lunchtime at work and I was bored. And, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm constantly updating this list uh, I have of, you know, films that I haven't seen. And a lot of it is me, you know, trying to see seminal films that just, you know, I've, have never made it onto the docket. Um, and I just thought I'd said, you know, like, hey, here's here's some films that probably most serious film buffs have seen and I've just not gotten around to. I, I was sort of hoping that people would react by putting up their own lists of seminal films that they haven't seen, but instead everyone just decided to mock mine. No, I, I think there's a combination of, yeah, of people having a conniption that you, I will say this from, because I'm in the same boat. Um, people are astounded if there's a film that we have missed. Right, and it's like, look, you know, you we, don't realize how many movies, I mean, you could watch a movie a day for the rest of your life and you would still only see a surface. small portion yep. of the films that have already been made, let alone the new ones coming out. I mean, I see, on average, about three, three and a half new movies per week, plus what I'm watching on for my video column yep. and so forth. So even then, yeah, there's lots of stuff. So probably the most, the highest profile one on the list is uh, Dirty Dancing, which I believe they're remaking now. Is that right? I didn't they already do that? No, know. that was a va- anyway. It's a but yeah. There, there was a all mixture the, of all of, the eighties films are being re- remade. Yeah, that's fine. That's true. Um, and get off our lawn. Uh, but there, there, yeah, there was a combination. I think of support on yeah, you should really see this. And yeah, people were absolutely stunned. Um, I get that if I don't own a particular film. I got grief. <laughs> I got grief from my family because and and from uh, our dear friend Mark, who you know was astounded that I and that I didn't own. Um, Groundhog Day yeah. or Ghostbusters. Yeah. And then I had to buy him just to shut him up. <laughs> so thanks, guys. Um, anyway, so... It, do you have the list? Because I I'm do have to... the list. I do have the list. This is Chris Lloyd's film. He, he has not seen these films. And then I have put them in the order of the films I think you should start with. Yes, that's right. And starting off, number one is um, is arguably my favorite David Fincher film, and that's Zodiac. 
Yeah, one that lots of people talk about uh, fairly recently. And by the way, a lot of you didn't see it either. So 2007, it completely bombed when it came out, but got a lot of Because love. I think a lot of people, because it's, of course, the, the Zodiac Killer, and I think a lot of people were expecting another seven, and it is not. David Fincher makes procedure sexy. Right. He does it with seven. He does it with um, uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoos to a certain degree. Definitely does it with the social network. Um, so I will have you know that uh, as a result of your input, I did go on my Netflix queue and added Zodiac and moved it to the top. There you go. Number two, because I love Ken Russell and he's a lunatic and it's Tommy. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, now, now I know there's a few musicals on here. Is it musicals as a genre or just these particular ones? These particular ones. Okay. Um, you know, some some musicals I really get into, some I don't. Um I, in general, I seem to like classic musicals, which I guess obviously that that is a classic. But I'm thinking like you know pre 1965, pre 1961s, uh, golden age of, of Hollywood. But yeah, and, and this is the, and the other one on your list. In both cases, I'm ashamed to say I actually started watching the movie and I, we'll, I turned it we'll, off. We'll get to that, but yeah, I, I think Tommy's just I he he made a calmer musical. He did The Boyfriend. Yeah. In 1971. But this one's just, it's insane. Yeah, I got to, well, it had Oliver Reed skipping and singing, and, and Oliver Reed can neither skip nor sing. And you have two of his musicals on the list, by the way. And you have Anne Margaret rolling around in baked beans and chocolate and champagne, and to which my wife said, she got a nomination for this? Yeah. It must have been a slow year. I also thought of another one from the same era, Barbarella. Never seen Barbarella? I, I own Barbarella. Um... Can't, I can't wait for your angry emails. Uh, so, yeah, Tommy, number three, Cabaret. Yeah. No, and I can do the thing. I have a daughter who's seen Cabaret before you. It's on, on my Netflix queue. Okay. Number four, another Sidney Lumet film. I love Sidney Lumet, Murder on the Orient Express. Just, solid, sorry. solid. Okay. No, 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 that's it. all right. That's all right. Uh, number five, this was the first David Lean film I saw in the theater when it opened in 1984, Passage to India. Yeah. Bigger screen, sit up close. I'm having trouble, believe it or not, tracking it down. There's a lot of classic films that are no longer available, even as a DVD, through these things. It's like that one, A Passage to India. I I, I have it if you want to borrow it. Um, And Tommy. Um, Let's see, number six, Cat Baloo. Yep. Jane Fonda and and Lee Marvin winning Best Actor. And, of course, he also thanked the horse. Um, Next is An Affair to Remember. Date night, you could do that for date night. Yeah, and that kind of for me falls in with Dirty Dancing. It, you know, it's 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 okay. a really gooey, sappy flick, romantic flick that just I've I've never, especially now with young kids and two and a half jobs, I just you know trying to <laughs> find jobs, time, right. trying to find time to just watch movies for pleasure is really tough, and I just never made. The well, cut. then if you want something goopy in a different way, Tom Jones. Yeah, so uh, young Albert Finney there. Um, and then we talked, you mentioned it, you alluded to it earlier, The Sound of Music. You've only gotten 20 minutes through this picture. Yeah, it may not have even been that far. I'm, I mean, I'm trying to remember. I think both both occasions, and I hate to, I, I, I like to brag that I've never walked out of a movie in a movie theater. Right. But I have turned off movies on, not, not often, like literally probably like, you know, one hand I can count them on. But it's probably like I was late, I meant to watch it, I was tired, and I, you know, I was like, oh, forget this, I'll get to it. <laughs> next week and I never did uh, we have a household I have a house of ladies so there's nothing I can do about that and then Oliver of course um, I think 2001 obviously still should have won or The Lion in Winter but it's the other Oliver Reed musical is Bill Sykes yeah and Ron Moody um, yes then we have The Parent Trap both versions um, 
I know. It's okay. Uh, then Dirty Dancing. Dan- Dirty Dancing is second to last, and then Happy Gilmore. You really, you're okay with missing the early Adam's loud Adam Sandler movies. I have really not seen a lot of you know his stuff from like the 90s up until like 2000. Billy Madison. I think we're on Punch Drunk Love when I was following was the point where I said, you know, like I should watch some of this guy's stuff. And so I saw most of his things going forward, like some of it, like, you know, 50 First Dates. But uh, back when he was in his, his true man-boy phase. What's that, what's that Adam Sandler film where he screams a lot and knocks yeah. somebody down? Oh, yeah. yeah. The early ones. Okay, so I, I cut to try to help out, and, and I these are all, to be honest, I, I did two searches, one of Criterion and the other of Oscar Oscar pictures. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen Nicholas and Alexandra or Zorba the Greek or That's a good one. The Red Shoes. Or the original Razor's Edge. I've seen the Bill Murray version. That's yeah. how Ghostbusters got made, folks. Um, Going My Way, I don't recall seeing. Uh-huh. I don't think I've ever seen 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah, you don't You don't need to see it, though. <laughs> 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 wow. Um, but God sounds like James Mason, according to Eddie Izzard. Um, as, as somebody with a degree in journalism, I should watch Ace in the Hole mm-hmm. with uh, Kurt Douglas. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, the original Cat People. Ori- I've not seen it. The original Diabolique. No. Now I'm in the Criterion list. Um, Francis Ha. And oh, I yeah. love. I like Noah Baumbach's work, and I really enjoyed Mistress America, and I'm surprised I didn't get to Ms. I was Gerwig's not work. a big fan of Francis Ha. See, I've liked the Greta Gerwig stuff she's done mm-hmm. s- before that and since, but that particular one did not do it for me, whereas I know so many people in our in our circle love that film. Yep. The original To Be or Not To Be. Seen Mel's version, not that. A lot of early David Lean, like uh, Oliver Twist and Great Expectations, have have not seen. Yeah. Um, Rafifi. Oh, I, yeah. I should see that, especially because every heist film on the planet owes a, a little debt to that. Uh, and then the original uh, Heaven Can Wait, Pony uh, piggybacked with uh, Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Wow. So you're not alone. It's yeah. just different titles. Well, one of the things I, I've been doing with the Reeling Backwards, I kind of haven't done it lately, but you know, I made a thing to see all of the Oscar-winning films for best film, which uh, you'd be surprised. You go through this, particularly you know, like the late 20s to 1937 or so, the first decade or so of that. There's some you know pretty obscure ones on there. I think I've still got about four or five left. I mean, that's just not even one's nominated for best film. That's, you know, hundreds or probably even thousands. I went back going, I was to compile that list. I went and if you go to Wikipedia, they have the list of the nominees for best picture. So I, I haven't gone as far that way. I went back year by year to see how far before I missed a best picture nominee. Uh, 1972. And it's on criterion. Now, uh, the immigrants, Oh, yeah. the, the Swedish uh, film, not directed by Bergman, but it has Bergman-esque actors in it, like Max von Sydow. So, yeah. It, it, so, ladies and gentlemen, it happens. Yeah. Just don't, you know, don't don't have a hemorrhage because we didn't. And because I know a film that I absolutely love, and somebody doesn't see, it just so happens that we happen to have a a website and a platform and you know TV and stuff for it. So it's okay. It's all, all right. right. Um, Okay, I I came across this in uh, the Great Job Internet section of The Onion, the AV Club. And apparently this is a thing now. It's um, hashtag Trump explains movie plots. (laughs) You ready for this? I think you'll recognize, you'll see where this is going. There's there's only a few of them, but I think it works out well. Does the word loser make any appearance? Oh, here we go. So here's, and these these are compiled by different people. So you can go, but yeah, if you do hashtag Trump explains movie plots. Terrorists, who are failing, by the way, blow up a big, beautiful Death Star built by very smart people. Sad. 
<laughs> That's Star Wars. Old Man Potter tries to run a profitable business, has to deal with a bunch of Occupy types, and it's Christmas. Like that, it's a wonderful life. I really shouldn't talk about it. I shouldn't. I can't, all caps. But really, folks, I can't. Okay? Okay. Spacebar. It's a fight club. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, gosh. Okay, I can't read that. No, I don't think I can read that one. Um, these women travel with these pants. A sisterhood, whatever that is. I have many pants. Just get more pants, ladies. Sisterhood. This guy, this creepy guy, he's got scissors for hands. Many people are saying this. My hands, they're great. <laughs> and a good size. Exactly. And then finally, little Frodo, very small guy, tries to destroy a ring. It takes forever. Total loser. I do it quicker, believe me. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's that. Yeah. Um, oh, so the other thing I wanted to ask you about, we have uh, just a couple minutes left, and uh, there's a section I love in the AV Club, and it's called Ask the AV Club. Yeah. And there will be a question about popular culture, and then um, and then the, the writing staff will answer the question. And then it's one of the few times I act- will actually read the comment section because I, I think it's one of the smarter uh, comment sections. Sorry, we don't have one at NPR anymore, um, and it's better than YouTube. But the question is, what pop culture becomes more meaningful as you get older? Yeah, this was a difficult. You, you put this question to me yesterday. And I've been thinking about it since then. And I'm so, so, for instance, like the person who wrote this said, "It's a Wonderful Life." Yeah. Uh, somebody wrote "The Wonder Years," the complexities of Winnie Cooper. <laughs> What's opera doc? Um, got Jackie Brown, which is my favorite uh, Tarantino film. Somebody wrote Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Do you do you have something that comes to mind? Because I wrote The Big Chill. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a really good pick. You know, a film that can mean a lot different to you know when you see it as a teenager versus middle age. Um, I don't know. If you went the other direction, films that you know lost meaning, then that would work. And I, I don't say that in an, in an insulting way, but like you know, uh, one of my favorite films when I was if, if you asked me when I was fourteen years old, what's your favorite movie? I think I would have said Blade Runner without any hesitation. Wow. Um, and it's still one of my favorite films, but it means a lot more more and less to me today, just because you know that movie is weirdly I correlate it in my mind with Catcher in the Rye. You know, there's stories about alienation, about not fitting in, about feeling like the entire world is working, but you're the, the, the misfit toy that's not working inside of it. Uh, and if you read that when you're 14 or 15 years old, I mean, you're so much identification with those characters and stories. It's like me listening to Springsteen around that same time. Yeah, yeah. You know, as I, mean, I don't know anybody who read Catcher in the Rye when they were 14 or 15 and didn't think, I am Holden Caulfield. And then you read it, you know, 20 years later, and you're like, oh, my God, this whiny kid. You know, I can't stand him. As, a, as an adult, I need to rewatch Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, that would be a good see one. Because I've heard people say, this guy's kind of a D-bag. Yeah. So in terms of a movie that takes on more meaning as I've gotten older, that's harder for me to answer. I mean, I, there's lots of movies that I love to repeat watch, and I gain something yeah. from it every time. Castaway, the hunt for the, the the hunt for Red October, just movies that I think are very complex, and I I enjoy something about them to admire. I find something new to admire about it every time. But in terms of personal meaning, that's tough. I, I came with an answer. I'm not sure if it's a good one, just because I finally picked The Bridge on the River Kwai, which is also my I will now admit my favorite film of all time. Wow! Just because I've I, I, people would put that question to me for 20 years and I wouldn't answer just because I, I said I couldn't pick it. It's okay. I'll do that for you. Yeah. 
Uh, and I finally was able to, you know, with about five years ago, say, like, yes, you know, I can really pinpoint that movie as this is my favorite movie. And it's it's just grown for me. And I see it very differently now from when I saw it. You know, I mean, obviously, when you see it, I saw it 20 or 30 years ago. You know, I, I very much admired, you know, identify with the Alec Guinness character and the uh, uh, William Holden characters. And, you know, now I see it in a completely different light. Like, you know, now I have this analysis that I keep saying about the movie, but it's it's really true. I think. The Colonel Nicholson character is the true villain of the story, and I would never that would never have even occurred to me when I was fifteen or sixteen years old to say that. But I really think it's true. So I think that's a film that definitely has has grown and changed for me. Or rather, the film has stayed the same. I've, I've changed. changed. Yeah, and I think for for me the big chill. I think that's a film that, as I wrote should be watched every five years. Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, go to the film yap. Um, also, don't forget to read his uh, reeling back piece on Big Trouble in Little China, for which I got a lot of lot of heat from my fellows. Whatever. So, Chris, thanks for hanging out. My pleasure, as always. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD Two The Point and WFYI.org. Good afternoon, Fort Myers. Good afternoon, California. Good afternoon, Michigan.